Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Who are to be the heirs? Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. That's Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through the end. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to the end. Thanks, Nick, for reading that. You know, it's interesting. I think Christians have always had a little bit of an awkward relationship with the law. And an experience I had in high school illustrates this a little bit. We were, I can still remember in the youth room exactly whose faces were around me and exactly how I was sitting. I was sitting in the floor, and there were four or five of us, and there was a youth leader named Perry that was leading us. And Perry just suddenly asked us a question about the law and about the speed limits in particular. And I remember he asked us about the speed limit on a particular road. It's called Tap Road in my hometown, which is the road that our high school was located on. And he asked us this question, how many of you obey the speed limit on Tap Road? And I remember that I was flush in the face and I I can remember all these moments when I just sort of let arrogance overcome me, you can feel it in your face and in your throat and in your whole body when you're about to say something arrogant, and at least I can. And I spoke arrogantly, and I said, well, I don't listen to that law because that law is stupid, right? And, and Perry just said, oh, that law is stupid, so you don't listen to it. Okay, and he moved on to the next question. And I doubt that anybody else in that room remembers my response, but I remember it. Like it was yesterday. It's just emblazoned in my mind. And the reason is because I was, although I was 
I think, regenerate. I think I had a real relationship with the Lord. I think I had been born again. I think I knew Jesus. I think I understood the gospel. I was walking with him. My theology had not yet come square with Scripture. And when Perry brought up this law that I neglected or intentionally disobeyed pretty much every single day of my life, I came under conviction. And what happened was this, this law just being mentioned reminded me of my sin. And because I lacked assurance, because I lacked confidence in my salvation, because I lacked a square understanding of God's word, because I lacked a real theology of salvation, because I lacked all of those things, suddenly in my arrogance I rose up to defend myself. I rose up to justify my actions. I rose up in my own defense to try to demonstrate that I was in the right. And what we're going to see in this text is that Paul is trying to rescue us from our arrogance. He's trying to rescue us from all these efforts that we make to justify ourselves. He's trying to rescue us from this desire to be made right with God on the basis of the law. And to set ourselves apart from others on the basis of the law and to become somebody on the basis of the law. And to build a reputation before God on the basis of the law. He's trying to rescue us. Because what happens when we hear the law, if we're trying to be adherents of the law, if we're trying to establish our righteousness on the basis of the law, then what's going to happen is whenever we're confronted with any potential wrongdoing, we're going to justify ourselves. That's the response of the sort of pushy-hearted among us, right? We're going to justify ourselves. And then others of us, those of us who are more laid back, those of us who, who shrink back more readily, we're not going to justify ourselves. We're going to beat ourselves up. We're going to internalize this conviction. We're going to become defeated. And we're all going to be both of those people at different points in our lives. And Paul's trying to rescue us from all of that. And the way that he starts to rescue us is with this bold claim, check this out, the law voids the promise the law voids the promise look at verses 13 through 15 for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Have any of you guys ever cooked on a Traeger? Anybody ever cooked on a Traeger? I had a Traeger for a while. It cooked some pretty good chicken. I had some good ribs off that thing. Cooked one of the best briskets I've ever eaten on it. But Traeger has one really terrible fault. And that is that if you use any pellets... Other than Traeger's name brand pellets, you void your warranty. And the problem with Traeger's pellets is they don't have any flavor. You, there's not a drop of flavor wood in them. It's, it's, just, it's just blank. They're terrible. And so I voided my warranty almost immediately upon purchasing 
my Traeger because I actually wanted to taste smoke on my meat. If you've met me, you know I want smoke to be on my barbecued meat. That's just something that is not a compromise I'm willing to make. And in the same way, if we, if we hold on to the law, if we try to make it the thing that sets us apart, we void the promise. We, we make it no good. It nullifies what God has done for us. We cast it aside. We say, that's not good enough. I want my own thing over here. And God says, okay, have it your way. Because the law nullifies faith. And that's, that's by choice. We're choosing. We're choosing to set ourselves apart. We're choosing to establish our own righteousness instead of submitting to, surrendering to the righteousness of Jesus Christ demonstrated for us and on our behalf. We choose. We choose to nullify grace. We choose that. The other thing that the law does is it brings wrath. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law... There is no transgression. And Paul's going to expand on this further in chapter 7. He's going to flesh it out in terms of his own life. But the short end of it is that the law awakens in us a sinful inclination. The law awakens in us a sinful inclination. Look, it's not like the law is depositing a sinful inclination in us. The law is not creating that. For us, no, it doesn't have to because that sinful inclination has lived within us all along. But the law kind of triggers it. The law brings it to the surface. And all you have to read is Genesis 3 to get a picture of this. Look, when, when Eve conf- is confronted by the serpent, what does the serpent do? Look, you would think that the serpent would try to minimize God's command, right? Like he's trying to get Eve to participate in this, in this sin. He's trying to get Eve to, to participate in this transgression. So you would think he would say, well, you know, what, what God really said was that you shouldn't eat the whole thing. Or what God really said is that you shouldn't have a feast, you know, you should have a moderate amount. What God really said was, and, and kind of try to really minimize the law, to try to lure her in. You know, hey, you can do it, just you don't pay attention to it. No, but what does he do instead? He actually amps it up. Why does he do that? Why? Because the more strict a law is, the more it's going to reach into our hearts and make us want to disobey it. So he tricks her by actually upping the ante. Hey, did God really say that you can't even touch? No, sorry, that you can't eat from any tree in the whole garden? Right? He ups the ante. He makes it more strict. And then Eve plays right along. Uh, no, it's just one tree, but we can't touch it either. Or else we'll die. So everybody's upping the ante here. Becoming more legalistic, more strict. Because the law magnifies, intensifies, and brings to the surface this inclination toward sin. And here's the deal with Adam and Eve. Look, like we don't know exactly when Adam and Eve began to have this inclination towards sin, but we know it was sometime before the moment when they entered into this conversation with the serpent, don't we? 
So the law avoids the promise. It brings wrath. Now here's the next thing that it does. Look at verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so here's what's happening is that faith, just like the law voids the promise, faith actually guarantees the promise. The law voids the promise. Faith guarantees the promise. I have YouTube TV. Anybody else have YouTube TV? I've got it two years in a row now. I've bought YouTube TV because it's the only way I can figure out to watch Kentucky basketball games on a consistent basis and know that I'm going to get to watch the Kentucky basketball games. Two years in a row now, I've bought YouTube TV, which is scandalously expensive, and two years in a row, when I've tried to watch Kentucky games, they just buffer endlessly, and I cannot get them to stream on my television. Everything else in the whole world streams on my television, except for YouTube TV. It's not television. It's not the Wi-Fi. It's YouTube TV. It's crazy expensive. And check this out. It does not work. It does not work. And so what Paul's trying to say here, check this out, is that, look, what you think you can do with the law, faith actually does, and it works. It's just like the author of Hebrews says, look, the problem with the Old Covenant is not that it's a bad idea. It's that it does not work because you don't work. That's the reason that the law doesn't work. The law is defective because you are defective. The law is defective because I am defective. It's bringing to the surface something wrong with me. And it's that something that's wrong with me that in turn is wrong with the law. You see that? The law illustrates a defect in me which in turn illustrates the only defect with the law. It can't work because I can't work. Just, with, just as it was with Adam and Eve in the garden. As soon as they were confronted, as soon as they were confronted with some sort of temptation... What we find out is that they immediately gave into it. And the reason is because they were only innocent and not righteous. Right? They were able to sin, able not to sin. Only in Christ have we ever returned even to that state where we're now able to sin, able not to sin. And only when Christ returns at the end of all things will we finally be better than we were at the beginning. Because we'll now be unable to sin. We'll be righteous. And we can't get there by the law. All we can do with the law is become maybe more and more innocent. In other words, maybe, maybe we can begin to break the law less and less. But we can never become righteous. Only Jesus can grant us righteousness because only Jesus has righteousness to give. So faith, faith guarantees the promise because our faith is locked onto the only righteous one who ever lived. 
So because faith guarantees the promise, we can trust it. And it, it guarantees the promise for this reason. First, it rests on grace. It rests on grace. In other words, this is a gift. This is something that's given to us without our having to merit it or earn it. It's something that's given to us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. So we can trust it. It's grace. Number two, it guarantees the promise because it brings in both Jews and Gentiles. That's what Paul has in mind here when he says that this promise actually applies to both the adherents of the law. In other words, those who are born into Abraham's family genetically or genealogically, these people belong to him. And they're a part of his ancestry and therefore they have the law. They possess the Torah. So they're Abraham's children if they believe. But also to us who become Abraham's children only on the basis of faith. Right? We don't have any, we don't have any blood ties to Abraham. We don't have any genealogical ties to Abraham. But we're his children because we trust the gospel. Because we're counting on the promise that God made to him to save us. And finally, it relies on God's own life-giving power. The one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He calls them into existence. So faith guarantees the promise. And the bottom line is it guarantees it because it puts us in complete reliance upon God. Who alone is able to execute his promises. We can't even execute the law. We can't even execute a simple command. Let alone the promises of God. But we can rest in the promises of God. And by his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the forming power of God's word, we can begin to be those who reflect God's law in the life we live in response to the gospel. And that's what Paul means earlier in Romans when he says that it's going to be the doers of the law who are justified. Right? Not on the basis of having done the law. It's just a fact that the same people who do the law, by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit and the shaping work of God's word, are the same people who were justified. So faith guarantees the promise. And finally, faith is counted as righteousness. Look at verses 18 through 25. In hope he believed, against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. Does that sound familiar, y'all? This week's catechism right here in Romans chapter 4. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of of Sarah's womb. So he didn't weaken in faith when he used his eyes and like looked at himself in the mirror. And he didn't weaken in faith when he looked at his own heartbreaking circumstances. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here's what this text is calling us to do. The first thing it's calling us to do is to believe in spite of our circumstances and our eyesight. Believe in spite of our circumstances and our eyesight. I've said many times that when it comes to trusting God, aside from, check this out, like mental and cognitive assent to the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, Aside from just that intellectual assent, faith actually comes down to really believing and assuming three things about God. Faith assumes that God is altogether good. Faith assumes that God is altogether powerful. And faith assumes that God is altogether wise. Right? And whenever we begin to lack faith, what's happening is we're kind of tripping up on one of those things. We have to have all three because if God is good and wise, but he's not powerful, then he's a cosmic, well-meaning wimp, right? And we can't count on him. He can't actually accomplish anything. And he's, he's, he's really kind and he's really smart, but he has no power. We, we can't rely on a God like that. And, and what if God is kind and powerful, but he's not wise, He's, he's a heavenly dunce at that point. And what if God, what if God is really wise and really powerful, but he's not good? Well, then he's a monster, right? And so for us to really trust God, we have to believe all these things about him. And we see all of these, we see all of them come to life on the cross. If we ever wonder about God's goodness, we can look at the cross, right? If we ever wonder about God's wisdom, we can look at the cross. It puts to shame the wisdom of the wise. If we ever wonder about God's power, we can look at the cross and the resurrection. And we can put our doubts aside on the basis of those things. So believe in spite of circumstances and in spite of your eyesight that God is good, he's wise, he's powerful. And when you don't have anything else to help you hold on to that, look at the cross. Because the cross can help you to alleviate the doubts that push you away from obedience and trust in the Lord. And the second thing, give glory to God. Give glory to God. Just as Abraham says that he grew in his faith as he gave glory to God. He 
grew in his faith as he gave glory to God. And exactly what's meant here by giving glory to God, I'm not exactly positive. It could be taken a few different ways. But in general, when we hear this phrase to glorify God, to give glory to God, what we need to think about is this idea of seeing the genius of God in everything that he's done and everything that he's made and echoing that back to him through our gratitude and our obedience. Seeing the genius of God in everything that he's done, everything that he's made, and echoing that back to him through our gratitude and our obedience. So when we echo these genius works of God back to him through gratitude and obedience, what the text is telling us is that for Abraham, this intensified his faith. It restored his faith. It grew his faith. So Abraham gained more and more faith as he walked in the footsteps of obedience and gratitude. The more he trusted God, the more God responded with faithfulness. And the more God responded with faithfulness, the more Abraham responded with gratitude and obedience. And it was a cycle that led to his faith becoming stronger and stronger. So believe in spite of your circumstances and your sight. Give glory to God and finally trust in Christ. Trust in Christ alone. Because these words counted to him are not for him only, but for all of us who place our trust in Jesus Christ. Man, we don't have to try to justify ourselves in arrogance. We don't have to try to establish our own righteousness. We don't have to feel ourselves getting all sweaty and bothered every time someone hints that we may have done something wrong. Doesn't failure just sting? It stings, doesn't it? Whether it's moral failure or other kinds of failure, it just reminds us that we're not everything we claim to be, we're not everything we want to be. But I remember sitting on the steps of the library at Southern Seminary with my buddy, Freddie T. You guys have met Freddie T. And I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember us sitting there and Freddie T. just looked at me and said, Coat, there's so much freedom in failure. There's so much freedom in failure. And I think the reason that that's the case, and, and if you haven't had very much experience with failure, you may not know what I'm talking about. But the reason that there's so much freedom in failure is because it brings us eye to eye, face to face with dead level reality about who we are. It gives us an opportunity for real, heartfelt confession. It gives us an opportunity to lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus with no claim whatsoever except that he has secured mercy and grace for us. And man, it feels good to come to Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that we're empty-handed. Have you ever done it? Have you ever just run to Jesus knowing wholeheartedly that you're empty-handed and only his grace and mercy, only his grace and mercy can supply you with what you need in that moment. No pretense of being good enough. No pretense of kind of measuring up, at least in comparison with other people. No pretense of being kind of in the upper echelon of righteousness, at least compared to humans. No pretense of being somebody just straight up 
the honest dependence on his mercy and his grace. Man, if you could feel that for just a moment, you will have felt the sweetest, the sweetest feeling you can feel on the side of heaven. It's the kind of feeling that's going to saturate our souls for eternity. Man, Jesus will have made us righteous. He will have made us unable to sin. And we're still going to be just in full comprehension of our absolute dependence on his grace. And that gratitude is going to saturate every moment. It's going to warm our hearts forever. Just like the light of Christ warms the new earth. And we're going to bask in it and glory in it and give thanks for it and worship him for it and praise him for it and give each other high fives for it. If we get lucky, maybe eat some heavenly bacon together and say, thank you, Lord, by your mercy. We're feasting here. Instead of enduring, instead of enduring the punishment that's rightfully ours. Man, and... Uh, it's just going to be glorious to run to him and know for sure that we're his. It reminds me of the first time I went back to Georgetown College after I had graduated. It had been a long time. And I went back as a camp pastor. Um, and Georgetown was just a campus. But it happened that my college band director was also the director of summer camps at the college. And... During college, I had been one of his favorite students for no reason. I mean, I can't think of a reason, but the moment I showed up, like the first day, for example, of band practice, he had put, uh, he had a deck of cards, and he put one card on everybody's music stand, and I turned mine over, and it was the Ace of Spades. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, why did you give me the Ace of Spades? You know, I asked him, he's like, I just, I just did, you know? And um, he was always giving me just little bits of, no favor, and it was constant. And he named me one of his gym alumni when I graduated. There's like five or ten of us from the history of Georgetown College that he just decided were like the gym alumni. I didn't do any. I'm really, I'm not boasting. I'm just like blown away by it. But I wondered if after all these years, when I went back, if he would still treat me with that unmerited, unexplicable favor. And so I, I, I went back and. He gave to the leaders of the camp, each of us, a, it's called a tiger card, and this is kind of what you can use to get snacks out of the vending machine, right? And everybody had, you know, 5, 10, 20 bucks on their card, and I went to use my card. Check this out. Infinite. This bottomless tiger card. Isn't that crazy? Like 10 years, 10 years later, maybe more, I don't even know how long it was, but it was mind-blowing to me. And I felt so much gratitude just to be shown grace by someone. There's no explanation for it. Y'all know me. There ain't no explanation for it, right? It, it just, he just decided to show me grace from the moment that we met. And listen, when we, when we return home to Jesus... We may have doubts for a moment. We may have doubts when we're standing in judgment. I have a feeling my knees might knock just a little bit, right, when my sins are kind of being recounted to me. But 
Jesus, he's going to wipe away all those doubts with an open and warm and enthusiastic embrace and say, come in here, you're mine. Come, you're mine. Father, this one belongs to me. Count my righteousness as his own, as her own. Come on in, let's party. I see some tears, let me wipe those away. You're mine. And in my Father's eyes, you are righteous. Now I'm just going to say, if that ain't enough to make you set aside the law, then you're crazy. I can't do anything for you. So run, run from your own righteousness. Run from the temptation to justify yourself. Grab hold of Jesus and do not let go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's intensive clarity about the gospel. Thank you for his understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done and how this had been how this had been outlined in all of the scriptures. God, I pray that you would use your word to form us into the likeness of your son, Jesus, and to help us to obey him every day by faith and help us to cling to the gospel alone for our hope of salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.